thanks for joining us for Diabetes Victoria's podcast series, Diabetes Life. Whether it's to talk about latest research and technology, sharing people's experiences of living a healthy and at times challenging life with diabetes, or the insights of dietitians, diabetes educators, physicians, athletes, or parents and carers of people living with diabetes, everyone has a unique and interesting story to tell as you'll find out in this episode. Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations, where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia, and pay our respects to all Elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. We hope you enjoy the program. Hi, everyone. It gives me great pleasure to join you today and and thank you all for listening to our, our podcast series, Diabetes Life. I am Glenn Noonan, the CEO of Diabetes Victoria and a proud dad of a son, Lockie, living with type 1 diabetes. Like many parents with a child diagnosed with type 1, when Lockie was first diagnosed at age 9, my wife and I found ourselves in the midst of trying to understand what this would mean for our son's life, what we as a family all needed to learn, how we could best support Lockie and keep him healthy and to ensure he lived a long life. I know firsthand diabetes is a complex and serious condition. It requires constant care and management for us as a family and for Lockie. Certainly, the type of management and the technology available has significantly changed over the years which has resulted from years of research and discoveries. And we, like all in the diabetes community, hope very much that that research and the discoveries will continue to evolve and improve and, importantly, be available to the wider community at large. Today, I'm honoured to be joined by a remarkable researcher, Professor Diana Magliano, who holds many, many important positions in the diabetes world, including the Head of Diabetes and Population Health at the Baker Heart Diabetes Institute, Professor in the School of Public Health, Preventative Medicine, Monash University, and the Coordinator of Masters of Public Health at Monash University. An impressive list. So a huge welcome to you, Diana. I'm very much looking forward to finding out more about the important research that Diana is undertaking about type 2 diabetes and the younger onset of this serious condition. So welcome, Diana. Getting into the the important research work that you are undertaking, can I start with uh, a question around the context uh, around type 2 diabetes and and the age and the work that you're, you're undertaking? And that is typically we do think of older people with type 2 diabetes, but, but what does the data show about the younger onset? Thanks for having me, Glenn. It's, I'm delighted to be here to talk about um, my work and in particular my uh, new passion in, in regard to my diabetes career. So, you know, when you think about young onset type 2 diabetes, you think it'll just be the same disease as we see in usual or older onset but in a younger person. But we're finding that's not true. The phenotype of young onset type 2 type 2 diabetes, and I'm talking about people who get diagnosed sort of late teens, 
till about 40. Um, this phenotype is marked by a rapidly progressing trajectory of complications. And there's all of the all the bad things that put us into hospital, make us feel well, and decrease our quality of life. And we we think that trajectory is faster than would occur in someone with type 1 diabetes of a similar age and a similar duration of diabetes, which was really surprising to the diabetes community. In addition to that, when we compare this group of young onset type 2 and we compare them to usual age onset type 2 at about 60 or so, the data are a little bit more mixed and we believe that for some complications, the trajectories are absolutely faster, but for other ones, they're the same. Um, so that so we have to learn more about it. So basically, it's a pretty aggressive, nasty disease with um, young onset type two diabetes, and these are our young people who mm. are developing complications in the prime of their life. Yeah, thanks, Diana. And undoubtedly, that's such an important issue to to better understand and to and to research. And you mentioned being concerned about a more aggressive form of diabetes experienced by young adults with early onset type 2 diabetes. What, what, what do you think is at play here? Okay, that's a great question, Glenn. And we don't really have good answers, but we think about two things. Young people have a really severe insulin resistance and young people with diabetes seem to um, have an extreme phenotype which is characterised by a rapid loss of their beta cells. So, for example, someone with young onset type 2 diabetes will lose their beta cells at a, at a rate of 25 to 30% per year compared to someone with usual uh, age onset type 2 diabetes, you know, sort of 55, 60, 65, which is only about 7% per year. So you can see how they do a lot worse, a lot younger. That's a significant difference, yeah. Yeah. We need more research to understand why this group gets so affected by diabetes in the young. And that's partly right why I'm planning studies in this space. And so many of us are familiar with the typical complications of, of type 2 diabetes, such as kidney, eye and heart disease. But we're also seeing an emergence of other complications, such as dementia and mental health conditions. Could you talk a little bit about why you think we're now starting to see these other conditions and complications arise as well. Sure. So you're right. So our traditional complications affected our eyes, our heart, our nerves, but we're getting really good at treating those. And so people with diabetes, type 1 and type 2, live through, live through these traditional complications to older ages. And now we're seeing a diversifying set of new complications emerging and they're thing, things like cancers. And you might expect someone with diabetes to have pancreatic cancer, and they do have higher rates of pancreatic cancer compared to someone without diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. But we're also seeing people with diabetes type 1 and type 2 developing bowel cancer at rates higher than the uh, general population, uh, liver cancer, breast, uterine, cervical and brain cancer, and some leukemias. We're seeing liver disease pre presenting in people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes compared to the general at higher rates than compared to the general population, as well as things like frailty and uh, COPD, sleep disorders, and iron um, deficiency. 
Are these uh, complications, have they always been there and we just haven't been aware or measuring or understanding things like bowel cancer and liver disease? Or is it the, is it the research that's, that we're now doing more of that's increased our understanding or, or are they actually new complications? Well, I think for the cancer one, people with diabetes are living longer, long enough now to survive their heart attacks and develop cancer. Okay, so I think that's where the cancer data comes into play. And also, as we become, uh, technology gets better and our ability to collect data, we have big cancer registries and big diabetes registries, and now we can actually detect the associations because we have the powerful data sets. We didn't have that before. Whether it's always been around, I suspect it has to low levels, but we just couldn't detect it or we weren't aware of it. In terms of the other ones, it's hard to say, but we certainly we're seeing more of it than we've ever had before. In terms of uh, the trial itself, could you tell us a little bit about what's involved in the trial, why it's different to other other trials, and the and the approach that you're you're undertaking? Okay, so it's actually a study. I'm not going to intervene. So it's just a study, a cohort study. The population I'm looking at are people who were between 15 and 39 when they were diagnosed with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes after the year 2014, okay? So I'm looking for two groups in, in with that age criteria. And then because these are young people, I'm going to follow them up while they're still young for the next perhaps 10 years and look for complications over time and collect the complications by linking their data to the registries and hospital data and uh, medication data. But what's really unique in the way I'm doing this is I'm going to use, um, do it in a complete remote uh, environment. So the recruits, the participants don't have to come to me. I'm going to send the questionnaires online. I'm going to consent them online. I'm going to ask them to measure their height, weight, waist and waist circumference online. I'll send them a video to help them do that. I've made that video. Now, for their bloods and their urine and their and their samples like that, I'm going to send them a pathology slip to Melbourne Pathology. So they'll go to pathology, um, get bled, we'll collect some urine. And then to collect some DNA, DNA, I'll send them a tube in the mail. They just have to spit in it and send it back. And so the actual burden on them is, is, is not very high. And being so online is really good for a young population because they're so good at technology. Yep. So that's kind of really unique. And I think they'll really like it. They don't have to spend hours with me in the clinic. And Diana, in terms of what success would look like, what would you like to see come from the study in terms of, I guess, learnings and, and observations and uh, I guess the outcomes and outputs from the, from, from the study that, that, that might uh, unfold? Well, I'm going to pilot first. We're about to start the pilot. I want to see how many people I can get interested and recruited and how many people will complete the data collection. The questionnaire's online, go to Melbourne Path, give me a sample of the saliva, and then I'll collect the data and it'll take a couple of years for the uh, the co-op to mature, for the co-op to develop the complications, for me to collect the complications. And then we might find that people with young onset type 2 are getting more kidney damage going to hospital more likely for kidney damage compared to the older onset group or even um, people with type 1. And that will tell us, well, we have to really watch that. We have to really intervene to stop these young people 
developing the kidney disease and how can we do that? We also might find that, because I'm asking a lot of questions about barriers to care and anxiety and depression, we might find that anxiety, depression and stress is really high in the young onset group. So what can we do to help them? Yeah. Yeah. Help help them manage their disease and feel better about their life. Because I think it's quite an um, an impulse to have diabetes. And you would know this from your son. It's it's almost not fair to have a chronic disease when you're so young. You know, you can't go out and party and enjoy life as like other kids can. You have to be careful. That's that's exactly right, Diana. And one of the challenging things about diabetes and your care is what you do now, what you don't do now, the complications are, are many years in, in advance and yeah. uh, you pay the price, I guess, so to speak. Um, yeah, and they're silent. They're, you know, they're silent. happening and they're silent. And then, and then once, once you get a bit of, um, you know, protein in your urine and your eyes go a bit funny, you go, oh, I might have been developing that complication. That's exactly right. And so I guess what I'm taking from what you're saying is the ability to intervene earlier the ability to have that information uh, to help uh, be informed around potential complications and to be watching those and to be able to put in place um, potential interventions is hugely, hugely powerful. So I would certainly see that as a, as a massive benefit and outcome of the study. And also, what are the sticking points for these young people? What do they want us to do? And, and part of the study, I'm going to have some focus groups where I get some people, some young onset type 2 in a room and some um, similarly aged type 1 and, and talk about their lives and what are the challenges they face? What are the barriers for them to keep their glucose under control? Because it's all about maintaining glycemia at, the, at those critical levels. How can we help them? Yeah, fantastic. Diana, you've recently received some significant funding for the study. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what what that is, what that, I guess, entails, what you've had to actually achieve to get the funding in itself? So I received about, I think it was last end of September, it's called a National Health and Medical Research Council Level 2 Investigator Grant, and it's five years' salary and five years of money to support a research project. It's about $300,000 a year to, for just the research project consumable costs. So it's it's about a 15% funding rate. So I was really lucky. I'm so pleased and relieved and excited and a bit scared all at the same time. I feel privileged. It took me three turns to get it. First, first goal was terrible. Second goal was just on the cutting line, on the funding line, and the third score was well and truly into the um, funding line, you know, so happy. I cried, got hugged all day. It was a fantastic day. Uh, look, that's, that is fantastic to hear, Diana. I, I do know from the researchers that I, um, that I talked to, you know, how, how challenging it is to get these grants um, and, and, and one of the significance that you've been able to get is fantastic. It certainly does deserve a, a huge um, congratulations. You should be very, very proud of yourself. Uh, I'm very proud to be associated and talking to you about the study. I'm very excited about the study and the outcomes um, that it will deliver. Can I ask, how do people get involved in the, in the study? Listening, listening to the podcast, 
uh, I guess, in the right range and perhaps just sort of summarise again that, that, that range, watch whom you're looking for and how they get involved. Okay, so it's people aged 15 to 39 at diagnosis, diagnosis after the year 2014 in Victoria for now, but we will move to other states after we get sort of our ducks in a row in Victoria. Our main source of recruitment is via the National uh, Diabetes Service Scheme. So we will be sending out letters in that group, thousand at a time. But we're also recruiting from our Baker Clinics, from um, some Facebook websites, type one and type two webs- uh, Facebook groups, and other social media sites. I've got an ad brochure on the Baker website, or you can contact me directly. Uh, I'm really well known in a baker, so contact me directly or go on the website. There's a brochure. And remember, the study is called Prediction. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic, Diana. I certainly wish you all the best with the research. And, and on behalf of Diabetes Victoria, we, we're very proud and pleased to be associated with, with the study and very, very much looking forward to, to sharing the results of, of the research um, as it, as it um, is undertaken. So thank you so much, Diana, for, for joining me on the podcast uh, today. It's, it's just been fabulous to hear from you on, on our podcast, Diabetes Life. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me and indulging me. And I hope to hear from lots of people soon. Thanks for listening. At Diabetes Victoria, we strive to support, empower and campaign for all Victorians living with diabetes. We're here for you and easy to contact on 1300 437 386. Also, visit the Diabetes Victoria website at diabetesvic.org.au and make sure you subscribe to the Diabetes Life podcast series and listen to each episode. Until next time, keep well.